Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Rick Cole is the Executive Director of the Congress for the New Urbanism, a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group that provides resources, education, and technical assistance to communities to build more socially just, economically strong, and people-focused places. Rick is a native of Pasadena and graduated from Blair High School before earning his degree in American Studies from Occidental College. Interested in journalism, he went to Columbia University for his master's degree and later co-founded Pasadena Weekly in 1984. What followed his time in journalism is a long and storied career in public policy and administration. He served on the Pasadena City Council from 1983 to 1995, during which he was appointed as vice mayor from 1990 to 1992 and mayor from 1992 to 1994. He would go on to serve as the city manager for the cities of Azusa and Ventura before being appointed by LA City Mayor Eric Garcetti as the deputy mayor for budget and innovation, a position that oversaw a budget of more than $8.6 billion. He followed this by serving as city manager for Santa Monica until last year. As Santa Monica's manager, he was responsible for the day-to-day administration of one of California's most progressive and successful city governments. When Rick was mayor of Pasadena, the city adopted its landmark general plan, an early model for smart growth that targeted new human-scale development around the then-coming light rail. Rick was recognized as one of America's public officials of the year by Governing Magazine and has received awards for management excellence from the American Society of Public Administrators and the Municipal Management Association of Southern California. Recently, Rick was appointed by Mayor Gordo to be his housing advisor, a position that would work with the mayor and his housing task force to develop the updated housing element of the city's general plan. Before we get into our discussion, there are a couple notes I wanted to share. Rick and I recorded this episode before the Pasadena City Council approved the draft 2021 to 2029 housing element earlier this month. The final plan is required to be adopted by October 15th. As we began talking, we had a small technical issue that resulted in the recording starting late. So our conversation starts right in the middle of Rick answering my question on some of the most important lessons he has learned from his career. Finally, Rick references California Senate Bill 9. This legislation would allow homeowners in most areas around the state to divide their property into two lots. It also allows two homes to be built on each of those lots with the effect of legalizing fourplexes in areas that previously only allowed one home. For obvious reasons, this is a controversial piece of legislation that would have a big impact on California and is currently making its way through the state Senate. But without further delay, my conversation with former Pasadena Council Member, Vice Mayor, and Mayor Rick Cole. My passion was to make cities that work, and I found that I had more hands-on experience uh, in making cities work uh, in executive management than I did as an elected official. And in terms of lessons, there's, there's lots and lots of lessons that I learned, but I think the most important that I would share with your listeners are 
from those who are outside government, you can make a difference. It'll just take you longer than you think it's going to take. Uh, a lot of people think, well, you know, well, this is stupid or this is wrong or uh, this could be improved. And they somewhat naively, innocently figure, well, I'll just get involved. And then if things don't immediately change, they get discouraged and they quit. And oftentimes, if they just hung in there a little longer to the point where they understood a little bit better and earned some some credibility and some access, um, they can actually make a significant difference. So, you know, that's that's a lesson for folks outside of government is a little bit of um, persistence and resilience goes a long way. Because government is designed to be slow. We designed it to be slow. Um, we want it to be fast unless it's doing something we don't like. And then we want it to be really, really slow. So, um, so we've designed our processes to, to slow things down. That can be overcome, but only with patience. Um, there are other lessons for folks inside government, but we'll save that for another day. That's fair. Housing and homelessness are very important issues to you. Now, where did this interest come from and who were some of your early influences? Well, you know, as mayor of Pasadena in the early 90s, which was um, people forget that we've had other uh, spikes in homelessness. In, in many ways, this is the most visible. But we actually had more people in Los Angeles who were homeless uh, back in the early 90s. And places like Santa Monica and Pasadena also experienced tremendous homelessness. Um, we didn't know why. And it took us a little bit by surprise. The federal government did a census in 1990. And as they always do every 10 years, and part of that census was to count homeless people. Well, they didn't have a very good methodology. So they only came up with about 230 homeless people. And federal funds were going to be based upon that figure. And I said, well, that's that's ridiculous. I've seen 230 people. We know there are more than that. So we actually organized. I'd read some article in in Governing Magazine about a city back east that had counted its own homeless people. We were actually the first city in California in Pasadena to count the homeless on our own. And we did it the way it's still done 27, 28 years later, which is we sent teams of four people out with flashlights and clipboards. And, and we tried to uh, cover the whole city and, and look underneath bridges and, and uh, in bushes and in parks and, and uh, doorways. And we came up with over a thousand people um, who were homeless. It led me to a passion for doing something about it. And we did. And one of the things that um, was really a big influence on me is, is I decided, you know, now people say, well, you have to include the voices of people with lived experience. It never occurred to me that you wouldn't do that. Uh, so I organized a mayor's advisory committee on homelessness made up of either homeless folks or folks who had recently um, been through that experience and could speak to, to how they were able to overcome it. And, and those dozen people were extraordinarily influential in my thinking. And I've walked the journey with other people um, who've been in that situation. And, and it's, uh, that's been the most influential on me is, is the actual lived experience. And by the way, homeless people are really, really different, just like people with houses. Uh, we, we often lump them together, stereotype them. You know, there, there are lost angels and there are, um, you know, predators among our homeless population, just as there are among the people with houses. But, uh, you know, there are 62,000 people we estimate who are homeless in Los Angeles County. There are 62,000 stories and 62,000 pathways out of homelessness. Thank you very much for sharing that. As we kind of shift over our conversation to housing, 
Uh, in April, Mayor Gordo appointed you as a special housing advisor. Um, in this new position, you will advise the mayor on housing issues, including the housing task force. Why was this important to you to serve our city in this capacity? And do you have specific objectives that you want to accomplish? Sure. Well, look, I personally have a lot of respect for Victor Gordo. I've known him for two decades, and I know his heart is in the right place. And I also know this is a really difficult challenge uh, for any city, for any mayor. So when he asked me to serve in that role, which was his idea, not mine, of course, I was happy to do so. What I hope to accomplish is what we're actually working on. And, and it's, it's not just the mayor or me uh, or mayor, uh, former Mayor Bogard, who's heading up the housing task force or the members of the housing task force or the planning commissioners or Victor's colleagues on the city council or the city staff or the folks you know, at Union Station or who are in the private and, and nonprofit affordable housing. Uh, it's all of us, you know. This is this is a community challenge, a multifaceted community challenge. We can't solve it within the borders of Pasadena, but we have to do our share. Pasadena historically has done better than our surrounding cities, but that's not saying much. Uh, our surrounding cities have been uh, have really terrible records, you know, La Cañada, San Marino, Arcadia, and that's not they're not terrible people, but they have uh, they've. They have been very reluctant uh, to take on a share of, of even multifamily housing, let alone uh, housing uh, for folks who've been uh, homeless and affordable housing as well. So it, it's, it's a big challenge. What do we hope to accomplish? Once every eight years, the state of California requires every city in Southern California to revise the housing element of its general plan. Most people don't even know we have a general plan, let alone a housing element. But the housing element is, is a blueprint, it's a plan uh, for accommodating our share of the regional need for new housing. It can also be a place to talk about how to protect the housing we have and how to protect the people who live in the housing we have from losing their housing uh, and how to um, make it easier for, for, for renters to become homeowners, which I think is still, for most people, it, it seems like maybe their, their whole life, they'll never have the hope to own a home. I think that's unfortunate for a whole bunch of reasons. So housing element has a, has a, is an opportunity for us to adopt some, some fresh ideas, test some new things, learn from other jurisdictions what has worked, learn from our own experiences, and apply our own values. Let me mention one thing that I think is is absolutely critical. I grew up in Pasadena. I'm proud of Pasadena. Pasadena has shaped me. Um, but when people talk about Pasadena's character, I resonate with that when they when they mean um, the ethos of, of a place that people care about and a place that where everyone is welcome. I do not resonate with that when people um, say that basically I would like to stay in a neighborhood that is only open to people who can afford to buy a million dollar home and up. That to me is is a different kind of character. And it also sounds like some of the racist um, uh, reaction to school integration growing up in this city 40 years ago. I think that Madison Heights is a beautiful neighborhood. Um, I, I lived there for a year going to high, high school, um, rooming with my best friend because my parents had moved away. I, I understand why people are concerned about traffic, concerned about change, concerned about intrusive development. So let's, let's sit down and work together and, and make sure that, that new housing that makes it possible for people who don't have a million dollars to buy a home uh, can live near the, the jobs they work in. 
Um, and, and that means, you know, maybe there's an ADU in someone's backyard. Maybe that means that, uh, you know, some not very uh, significant architecture gets replaced by a duplex. We're, we're not talking about uh, building 10-story buildings in Madison Heights. What we're talking about is, is a graceful evolution of a beautiful neighborhood that can maintain its character in ways that, uh, that include being inclusive uh, and offering opportunity for some of the people who garden there, some of the people who clean the houses there, some of the people who nanny there, some of the people who um, clean the pools there. Uh, those people are part of that neighborhood and part of our community as well. I think that dovetails really well into my next question, which is much is talked about, quote unquote, missing middle in housing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the housing that falls between detached single family houses and mid-rise developments. One of the many elements that make passing in such a special place is its single family neighborhoods. However, we do need more housing stock. And like you said, there's been a growing opposition to development. So how do you think we balance the development and neighborhood protection and is pushing missing middle the right path for Pasadena? Well, I think we have to get over this um, phraseology, which I think is really troubling about single family zoning and equating that with um, with Pastina's special character. Um, I live in Bungalow Heaven, lived here on and off for decades. Um, Bungalow Heaven is a neighborhood that, that has, uh, you know, very distinct. It was, I think, the first or second historic district in the whole city. People come from all over to, to the annual tours because of the unique nature of, of these homes, originally built for, for working people. You know, they were, they were modest homes. And we've always had back houses. We've always had duplexes. We have a handful of uh, bungalow courts. We, we, we have, you know, bigger houses and littler houses. And, and so single family, I think, is the wrong term. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what the right term is, low density. Um, in, in new, among new urbanists, we call it the transect, right? Um, it's, it's what my grandmother called a place for everything and everything in its place, right? Ten-story buildings belong downtown and, um, and buildings that, that fit in with the character. You know, I, when I walk my dog, so we're not very far away, you know, there are some fabulous uh, duplexes and fourplexes on Orange Grove uh, built in the 20s and 30s. So, you know, we can have wonderful neighborhoods and begin to, um, to make some dent in the, the need for that middle, middle housing a missing middle housing. By the way, you know, um, people people have this kind of either or attitude about about housing. You know, either we only do affordable housing, we only do market rate, or we don't build any housing, or we build a lot of housing. I I'm much more of the both and. Right? We should have duplexes and and um, and back houses and houses over garages that are well designed and and are not intrusive to existing neighborhoods. But that's not going to solve the housing crisis by itself. It's going to make a bigger dent than people think because um, some cities, you know, eighty percent of their residential land is zoned um, now R one. So so just changing that, you know, just in terms of the scale of the problem is important. We need to do we need to do lots of different kinds of housing because there's lots of different people and lots of different incomes uh, that we need to serve. the The state says we need 1.5 million new units here in Southern California, 
and people can argue it should be 1.3 or 900,000. And there's always going to be some people say, well, you know, there's vacant houses until every house is full, then, you know, we shouldn't build any new housing. Or um, There's lots of different arguments uh, about the scale. But here's the most important point that I think people um, should face the facts on. This, this is not to accommodate people who are going to come here from Latin America or Asia or um, from the rest of the United States. This is because we didn't build housing in Southern California, even as our population and our jobs grew. We have the population now. They're living in garages. They're living in overcrowded apartments. And frankly, a lot of them are living out on the street so the, the shortage of housing, you know, people get into all these uh, convoluted arguments about growth. We're, we're just talking about about being able to give a decent roof over the head for, for people who live here now and their children. So you mentioned that there was a failure to build housing when the city was growing. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think it's fundamentally an issue of supply? And can you simply just build our way out of the crisis? Uh, you should never have simple and housing in the same sentence, especially in Southern California. I'm both and. Look, um, I've been I've been involved in these issues for 40 years, and and they're not so hard that that we can't find some common ground. But you're never going to get complete uh, uh, agreement on the problem, let alone the solution. Here's a standard that I learned from from folks up in the Silicon Valley. Uh, a guy named uh, Carl. I'll think of his name. He's a civic entrepreneur up there. He, for many years, would go around the country because people would wanted to to mimic the success of the Silicon Valley. And he said it really boils down to 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 this simple standard. Every place I go in America, I find that people basically agree on on two, three, four big issues facing Buffalo, facing Tampa, facing Seattle, and and. In the Silicon Valley, it's housing, especially affordable housing. It's education, especially quality education. And it's transportation, especially, um, you know, dealing with commutes. And people, that those are the issues that, that the vast majority of people really care about and, and determine uh, our success at, at continuing to be prosperous. And he said, you know, the funny thing is about people agree on about 80% of how to, how to fix each one of those. Right. So people argue about, you know, is it more money or lower class sizes or charter schools or public schools? But basically, people um, have an agreement that, you know, kids ought to learn more math and science and that uh, they ought to, you know, graduate. We ought to close the achievement gap. And so here's what uh, what he said. If you spend 80 percent of your energy on the 80 percent on accomplishing the 80 percent you agree on you'll be a successful community. But most communities spend 80% of their energy and their time on the 20% they disagree about. And so nothing gets done, right? Because I keep you from getting anything done. You keep me from getting anything done instead of us getting together on the stuff we agree on. And that's Republican, Democrat, left wing, right wing, young people, older people, people of color, white people, uh, you know, all the different things that uh, are used to divide us. Yeah, there are differences in our society, very significant differences. But there are also things we agree on, stuff like good schools and um, better transportation and I hope affordable housing. And if we could just get together on the stuff we agree on, uh, then we can make progress. 
last year, Portland passed its residential infill project, RIP, which I think is an unfortunate name for it, but as a way to, to supply more area housing. Uh, and this follows, like you said, other cities, Minneapolis, Seattle, Austin, Vancouver have all passed various code reforms. Portland policy would, among other things, allow for up to four homes on nearly any residential lot. Do you think this approach would work in Pasadena? You know, it's it's similar to SB nine, which is uh, which is in front of the uh, the state assembly after having passed the state senate. The pro housing um, contingent in California is as actively pushing it, and the anti uh, or the local control folks, as they'd like to be called, you know, are vehemently opposed. Um, look, I don't think any single blunt instrument. Cities are not simple. Just like I think that that. Single family zoning is a is a too simple tool, too restrictive a tool. That I think that that saying you know every single neighborhood in in all of California or in all of Pasadena, you know we should say doesn't matter how big the fourplex is, you know let's just let's just build more housing. I, I, that's why I'm I'm really hopeful that around this housing element we can find common ground. So, so maybe half the neighborhoods in, in Pasadena, after we go through and analyze them, uh, you know, could have duplexes and the other half could have fourplexes. Um, or, or we could, um, you know, there, there are ways in which uh, we can fine tune some of this. And the people who talk about low control, I, I want to call their bluff, right? Okay, you want local control. Take local responsibility. You don't want the state telling you where to put housing. Then you figure out where to put new housing. Don't say, well, we don't want you to tell us what to do, and then we're going to do nothing. Uh, if cities are proactive, and, and by the way, the, the other advantage of doing that locally is then if it doesn't work, you can change it, right? It's not the end of the world. Cities are dynamic. Cities change. We're a very different city than when I was mayor. Uh, when I was mayor, we're a very different city than when, uh, you know, my predecessors uh, were mayor. The, the cities change, and 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 uh, you do more of what works, and less of what doesn't. It's not a really complicated thing. But if you pass a law at the state level, it becomes very hard to to change or to fine tune. So I I support SB nine because I think cities have have utterly failed to take um, local responsibility. But would I prefer that SB nine not be necessary? Absolutely. And, and I would love to see cities, even at this late hour, say, wait, wait, okay, hold off. Don't pass this law. And here's the six things we're going to commit to. And you can hold us accountable that over the next two years that we're going to do them. And, and, and then that's called compromise, right? That's called progress. Um, and, and I think if, if cities would do that, we actually would be in better, better shape. But in the absence of cities, the cities just folding their arms and saying, and by the way, passing is not you know, not like that. Pasadena's got a better record, as I said earlier, than most of our surrounding cities. But that, again, is not saying much. We we have we have not um, done enough uh, to to accommodate the the need of of a prosperous community with a lot of jobs uh, and and a lot of people having to, to to face hellish commutes to get here to work. And and even more importantly, a lot of, of families who grew up here, multi-generational families, especially black and brown families, uh, who can no longer afford to live here and who are moving to, you know, Lancaster and Palmdale and San Bernardino. Uh, I think that's a loss to our community. It is. Yeah, we're losing a lot of legacy families because of housing affordability. I think one of the central themes of what you've been sharing is that 
there's no one solution to anything that it's a combination of a lot of different things. And so one question I had was, you know, there's been talk of rent control in the city. We've heard a lot about that for years, but it seems like in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of more momentum. There's been a, this, a community group that's organized passing a tenant justice coalition, and they started a petition to put rent control and eviction measures on the June 2022 ballot. What are your thoughts on rent control? And do you think it could be a, a helpful tool to address some of these issues? Yeah, I have a lot of experience with rent control. You know, I, I, I got my master's degree in, in New York and, and um, uh, studied urban development in that city, which has had rent control for, you know, decades. Um, I was city manager in, in Santa Monica, which is, you know, uh, the poster child good and bad of, of rent control in Southern California. And, you know, I was deputy mayor in Los Angeles where we had rent control. And I've also worked in cities like Pasadena and Ventura without rent control. It's a political question at, at some level. Um, I think the, the more important question for Pasadena is uh, this is a community unlike what the community I grew up in. Um, this is a community that's 58% renters, 58% renters. If we had an election, we'd say that was a landslide, right? But there's almost no attention paid to renters. I get, give the city council credit. Like every other city, they, you know, they moved on an ev eviction moratorium during COVID. Um, but the real concerns of, of uh, bad housing, uh, of poor landlords, of um, fiscal stress that has nothing to do with the landlords, the city has not devoted time and attention to this. So here again, here comes the blunt instrument of let's let's bring in from scratch rent control. I think the problem with that is the community thinks of itself as a, a community of, of owners, uh, even though it no longer is. And a lot of people have not had any exposure to this. And what will happen is a group of idealistic um, grassroots activists will get completely outgunned by hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of real estate money that will come pouring into an election. That's that's how things happen, you know, in, in 2021. So the question is, you know, is, is this a good, is this a smart political strategy as well as a smart public policy strategy? If it forces the city to pay attention to the plight of renters, then it's a good thing. And if the city um, takes that seriously and begins to recognize that a majority of the people who live here are renters and that they deserve as much attention as has been lavished on single family homeowners for all these years, then I think we make some progress. Now, I don't discourage anybody from going out and, and getting petitions. Um, their rent control um, has big advantages in the short run, and it has some long-term disadvantages that that depending upon how it's administered can can be somewhat mitigated, but, but are troubling. But, it, but the the crisis is real. And the people who say, well, no to rent control, the question is, well, yes to what? And, and that's, I guess, a, a message I'm, I'm giving here is we, we've got to roll up our sleeves and be serious about some of these issues to, to hope it will go away um, is like, you know, driving down the street and hoping that the sheriff is going to come and solve homelessness. That's not going to happen, right? He might move a few people off of the Venice um, boardwalk this, this weekend and, you know, get national news of people who hate him and people who love him. But it's not going to solve the 62,000 people who are, who are homeless. We're not going to put 62,000 people in county jail. So um, 
So, you know, we need to be serious. Uh, this is serious. These are serious problems. We've neglected them for three decades. Now we're going to spend the next three decades on untangling this. And the time to start is now. You know, Napoleon supposedly, when he was in Egypt, you know, he saw his troops who were wearing European uniforms just sweating as they marched, you know, toward the pyramids. And he, he turns to his aide and he says, we've got to plant trees. And his aide said, but mon général, it'll take 30 years for the trees to grow. And he said, that's why we have to plant them today. You know, that is, you know, the, the best time to have built housing was 30 years ago. The second best time is now. As of June 1st, you took over as executive director of the Congress for New Urbanism. CNU's charter is best described as promoting the restoration and reconfiguration of sustainable communities and conservation and preservation of our built environment. What are your priorities at CNU as you step into this new role? And how do you see urban planning evolving? Well, those are big questions. And uh, they are very big questions. Let, let me first express some humility. I've, I've been, um, I've long believed in the, in the idea of, um, think globally, act locally. So while I'm concerned about climate change and concerned about, uh, you know, global prosperity and, you know, billions of people around the world crowding into slums in, in major cities, I've tried to work at, at the local level here in Southern California so we can at least be a model, right? We have all these advantages. We, have, we live in America. We have the rule of law. We're a wealthy country. If we can't solve problems, what hope is there for Kinshasa or Zimbabwe, you know, et cetera? So now I'm, I'm uh, while I've been involved in the Congress for New Urbanism, have learned a lot from them. Uh, now I'm involved in a leadership role at the national level. So I'm still learning. And what, what, here's what I really hope to accomplish, um, not on my own, but uh, with, with a very talented staff, very committed board, and, and some, some very passionate members. I think that, that New Urbanism needs to be back at the center of the national conversation. 30 years ago when the organization was started, even if you've never heard of it, it has had an impact on your life. Because 30 years ago, we were not smarter than everybody else. We were paying closer attention than everybody else. So the new urbanists said, look, gas is not going to last forever. And, you know, we spent $3 trillion to, to make sure we've got other people's oil. That suburban sprawl can't go on forever that uh, hollowing out our inner cities can't go on forever, that building wider and wider freeways can't go on forever. And as the great economist Herb Stein said, things that can't go on forever don't. So the new urbanist 30 years ago said, look, we can't keep widening freeways. We can't keep building tract homes out in you know the desert. We, we, we can't keep doing this. It's too expensive environmentally, economically, and socially. And it's killing our soul uh, because a community that's close-knit, a, a traditional community, a small town or a neighborhood in a community like Pasadena, that, that provides so much more to a family and to a child growing up than than living in a tract house and having to wait for their mom or dad to drive them to, you know, soccer practice. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood where I could bike to the library, bike to, you know, play, play ball with my friends, bike to school, walk to school, in fact, most of the time. So that's what New Urbanists started saying 30 years ago. So we've, we've made a lot of progress. Now most people uh, have kind of come around to this view for all kinds of reasons, including climate change. 
but we're still widening freeways. We're still building crap. We're still um, doing really counterproductive things uh, that are that are adding to, to greenhouse gas emissions. So I think we need to be back at the the center of the national conversation with not with criticism, but with with answers. And our answers are are, are pretty nuanced. They're timeless ways of building adapted to the way we want to live in 2021. Right, so it's it's not it's not um, replicating exactly what what cities were like a hundred years ago, but it's taking timeless ways of building that were that were created over five thousand years before air conditioning, before cars. Human beings had to live in hot climates and cold climates. Um, they had to live together, and they didn't have uh, buckets of money to build you know fourteen lane freeways. Um, so we need to we need to recapture some of those timeless ways of building that are more sustainable. They, they actually were sustainable over 5,000 years. About 70 years ago, out of our hubris as moderns, we said, oh, we don't need to, we, we can start over again. Modern materials, modern designs, modern cities. And it hasn't worked out all that well. So, so my goal is to, is, to, is to have us talk about this. And by the way, I think that's really, you know, if, if I was at CNN and wanted to spend an hour uh, of, of Americans' time, I would say, well, let's talk about how we live in our neighborhoods and our cities instead of what's going to happen tomorrow. Is Trump going to be indicted? What will happen if he is indicted? And what will happen if he's convicted? And, and you know, hours and hours of, of stuff that does not affect your life my life, our neighbor's life, or the people who are homeless living in, um, in tents down the street. We ought to be talking about those things, and not just at City Hall, but on CNN, because um, those things actually matter, and we can do something about them. That's what I hope is we'll, we'll start doing. Um, but, you know, CNN makes their money by getting us all excited about stuff that really doesn't affect us directly that much. It's that 20% that you referenced earlier. It's the 20% you can't do anything about that we spend 80% of our time on. And it's killing us. Um, it's postponing solving the big problems. And the Democrats don't have all the answers. And the Republicans don't have all the answers. And unless they can find, uh, we can find some common ground between those two polarized factions. Uh, I happen to be a Democrat. So I think we have more you know, a better answer than the Republicans, but I certainly don't think we have all the answers. And I really worry about a state like California as I worry about a state like Texas or Mississippi, where one party has all the power. I don't have a lot of sympathy. I think the Republicans have brought it on themselves in California, but um, we need a check and a balance. That's, that's, uh, that's how a system works best. And we're lacking that now because we've become so polarized and we have red states and blue states and, um, and we're getting red government and blue government. Uh, and what we need is red, white and blue government. One of the largest challenges to legacy communities, especially minority communities, is gentrification, which is the, uh, the displacement of residents and businesses due to new investment. You know, here in Pasadena, how do we encourage reinvestment in our older neighborhoods while also preventing the displacement of current residents and businesses? Well, first of all, by, by having that as an explicit goal and, and, and experimenting with policies that, that, that can help do it, I, I'm convinced that, um, that we can direct more of the positive impact of investment 
into benefiting uh, existing neighborhoods. Jalene Mosley, the the late entrepreneur and philanthropist uh, who was really beloved in, in Northwest Pasadena and deservedly so. That was her philosophy was let's, let's make sure that the new businesses um, spring from, from this community and its talents and, and strengths. Let, let's um, ensure that um, the people who get hired in the businesses that come from elsewhere or that spring up are people who come from the neighborhood. Let's ensure that um, that people in the neighborhood have role models of local business people and local professionals who, who are working in their neighborhood and they can see, yeah, that's what I want to be when I grow up and to mentor them and to give them, um, you know, the kind of quality education that, uh, that every child deserves. It is hard work. It is patient work. But I think Jaylene Mosley demonstrated that it is worthwhile work. And that's the, we, we ought to be doing that. That ought to be uh, an explicit um, focus. And you can do that with community development corporations. You can do that with philanthropy. You can do that just by, by um, a commitment on the part of businesses when, when uh, new buildings uh, are introduced into a community to say, we're going to hire folks from the local community. We're going to go the extra mile to do that. That's not a panacea, right? Just as there was harsh, really destructive impact when uh, when money was disinvested from those communities, when businesses shut down and, and, and the city stopped, not this city necessarily, although in many cases this city as well, but cities stopped investing in those low-income neighborhoods. They were redlined, you know, for bank loans, but also for, for, for city investment. And, um, you know, that had a huge detrimental impact. Now, as money begins to flow back into those neighborhoods, uh, we owe it to the people that have been loyal to those neighborhoods to have that be a benefit to them and not just kick them out. You are a, a prolific writer. And based on the writing and research that you've done, it seems like you're a great student of history. Your recent article in Passing and Now regarding Ross and Helen Raines is one great example of that. What do you think we can learn from Pasadena's history of racial discrimination and neighborhood destruction, which is caused by you know freeways or or uh, things like that, like you'd mentioned, and is it possible to right some of these wrongs? Yeah, you know, I, I quoted Faulkner in that article um, writing about the South when he said, uh, "The past is not dead; it's it's not even past." Part of it is is to understand the history and that it that it affects us today, um, and. That isn't to wallow in it or to be stuck in it. There are people who, who've risen above that. But, you know, another article that I'd like to write is about um, Jackie Robinson, who uh, overlapped with my dad at John Muir High School. Jackie is one of America's iconic heroes today, um, not just a sports hero, but a, but a, but a hero of someone who's, whose character and identity, you know, is an inspiration and should be to young people everywhere of whatever color. And I've seen lots of white kids wearing 42 jerseys. He left Pasadena and vowed never to return because he felt it was a racist town. I don't think that's helpful to, you know, to sort of binary, you know, Pasadena is or is not racist or was or was not racist. I think what's what's important is to say we have to overcome this stuff and let's be patient. Let's be humble. Let's be committed to do that. And let's listen. That's hard for people to listen in today's world. But I, I think that, uh, yes, I think that there's ways in which we can heal these 
gaping wounds. I think recognizing the history that 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 really happened is critical to do that. And then to say, not just, okay, well, that happened. That, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do to fix it and improve it? Where do you envision Pasadena being in 5, 10, or 15 years? And are you optimistic about its ability to rise to the challenges that we face? You know, I, I really like what Pope Francis says. He said, you know, when you look at, at history, there's not really a reason to be optimistic, but there's always a reason to be hopeful. So, uh, you know, being born American and being kind of American through and through, I'm a born, I'm born with hope that, you know, Americans believe they can change the world. That's kind of the the founding idea when in the course of human events, right? You know, we made a choice to, to stand on our own two feet to govern ourselves. And we're stuck with that choice. And, and it comes with responsibilities. So am I optimistic? Uh, I've seen lots of reasons not to be optimistic. I think Pastina is smug and complacent by and large and coasting on its assets. Uh, it's not unique in that. And it has fantastic assets, fantastic assets. And it actually can float on its assets for, you know, relatively long time. But eventually... Uh, the bill comes due of the things you weren't paying attention to. And and, um, and, and then oftentimes it's too late because you're out of money at that point and uh, you can't go back and, and fix the things you neglected. Pay me now, pay me later. So um, I'm hopeful that people will recognize that Pasadena needs today and in the future to be doing things to build for our children and grandchildren's future, because that's what we were given by previous generations. You know, the the generation that said, we'll have a library within a mile of every kid. Incredible vision. The generation that that chose to build a city hall for a town of 20,000 people, you know, that's that's on the National Register of Historic Places. Town that, you know, created institutions like the, you know, what, what is now the Norton Simon, but was originally the Pasadena Museum of Art you know, Caltech, you, you go back and you see the Rose Bowl, right? Um, that, that We shouldn't, you know, just be fixing up the old city hall and fixing up the old libraries and fixing up the Rose Bowl. We should be creating our own, whether it's tangible or social, we should be creating our own legacy of things that future generations will be proud of, will draw upon long after we're forgotten and dead but we'll, we'll be able to be the beneficiaries of that. We're the beneficiaries of previous generations. We are also the fiduciaries for their mistakes, for the things they did wrong, for the mistakes they made. We, it's our job to fix some of those things, just as unfortunately my children's generation are going to inherit you know, what we baby boomers failed to do in our desire for freedom now uh, and peace now and satisfaction now. We neglected long-term investments, and and our children will pay the price. But now for baby boomers, for millennials, for Gen Z, and all those other alphabet soup now that we we have, we should be working to lay the foundation for a better future for Pasadena. I don't see a lot of evidence of that. I don't see a lot of fresh thinking. I don't see a lot of innovation. I don't see a lot of courage. Um, I don't see a lot of vision. That disappoints me. 
but it doesn't surprise me because, uh, again, this is a great place. When I walk my dog, I think, boy, this is a great place. The weather's nice. The, the houses are beautiful. People seem happy. They're coming out of their homes. So, you know, why are we making a stink, right? That's I, I get why people are, are smug and complacent and elect elected officials who tell them fairy tales about everything is fine. Uh, it'll be fine until it's not. And when it's not, it'll be too late. Rick, thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena and for your continued service to our city. And I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Well, and let me say, um, I appreciate you undertaking this project. I don't know how many people will listen to this, but uh, but we should be talking with each other about these issues. And, um, and I admire the people who serve on our city council now. Um, I don't always agree with them, but I... Uh, I think that they're they're willing to step up and they're willing to serve. And, and uh, I would hope uh, other people would do the same. Again, my many thanks to Rick for coming on the show. Please be on the lookout for Rick's guest opinions and articles in publications such as Pasadena Now. In May, he wrote an incredible piece on Ross and Helen Rains a black Pasadena family that challenged white-only real estate covenants. Their case would make it to the California Supreme Court, and their attorney, Lauren Miller, would go on to argue against similar practices before the U.S. Supreme Court in the landmark case of Shelley v. Kramer. I will include a link to the article in my show notes. And thank you for listening. This podcast is free, but it takes time and effort to produce it. If you are local to the greater Pasadena area, and interested in sponsoring the show, please let me know. And if you're a business owner or community leader and want to share your story, I would love to hear more about you and have you on the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing and rate and review the show so that others can find it. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Breaker. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. You've been listening to The Crown City Podcast. And until next time, please remember to stay well, stay positive, and as always, see you around town.